The What The If podcast is supported by the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, makers of Freudian slippers and lots of other political and literary gifts. In New York, you can find them down at the Union Square Holiday Market, but all over the world, you can go to upguild.com. The Unemployed Philosophers Guild, the unexamined gift is not worth giving. Welcome to What The If. Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker, here in the December of the year, where it is uh, dark and moder- moderately chilly in the northwestern hemisphere. Matt Stanley, how are you in uh, another sector of say, same said hemisphere? Uh, pretty dark and chilly here, too. Also wet. So. Oh, yes. Yes, a little bit wet. There's always room for a little more misery. <laughs> <laughs> that is a true New York staying right there. <laughs> and that is Matt Stanley from New York University, historian of science and maker of history. Uh, at times, yes. We're going to jump right in real quick with uh, some listener mail. update to uh, our previous episode uh, we just we just we just wrapped up a series uh three-part series about uh, computer history ken hayes from uh, tallahassee florida writes in about the distinction between bits and bytes ken says i noticed you are not being very careful to distinguish between bit and byte during the exposition about computers. Many times in the three excellent episodes, you used the word byte and then did not say that it was eight bits. In particular, an eight terabyte SSD, which is just in, I'm using a brand new computer I mentioned in one of those shows, I had just gotten it from Apple. He says an eight terabyte SSD needs at least 64 terabytes without any redundancy or error correction included, which I expect will be there in real life. As I said in the subject line, this is mostly nitpicking, but it does bother those of us that spent a career working in computers and networks to have the unit distinction be glossed over in casual discussions. Thanks for your attention. Ken, thanks for being so responsive. Yeah, he's totally right. So for those of you who aren't quite familiar with the um, the, the premise here, is the a bit, B-I-T, is one piece of binary information, a one or a zero, something that can be set to, on or off. And then a byte is eight bits. Um, and for complicated historical reasons, oh, that's B-Y-T-E, by the way, not B-I-T-E. Uh, for complicated historical reasons, um, eight bits was a useful chunk of information. That, that that was the original length used to encode a single character, like a letter. Um, so that became the standard for information storage. So nowadays, we we sell our hard drives in units of bytes, even though bits is what the computers actually use to do stuff. So. Yeah, and I was watching a, a computer history series on YouTube called Computer called Number File, I believe it's called, or Computer File. Uh, anyway, we're a bunch of experts talking about computer history. Fascinating series, excellent. Uh, actually, I should call them. Maybe we'll get them on. 
And one of them mentioned that in the early, early days before Byte, it, they just called it a word. Yeah, that's right. You'll that's right. You'll and you'll see that in um, I was about to say like programming manuals and things, but that's not true anymore. When <laughs> when I was first learning programming, um, you still talked about words, and I think that is not the case anymore because I'm old. <laughs> they also pointed out this this um, rather elderly gentleman who was the expert, hilarious expert on the show, that a half a bite was called a nibble. Nibble. <laughs> and he said, uh, he says, I spell it with an I, N-I-B-B-L-E. But uh, he he has known others who have used N-Y-B-B-L-E just to fit with the whole bite mm-hmm. nibble thing. So that is the delicious history of cookies. I mean, computers. Uh, and, and we do appreciate, uh, we appreciate all of you keeping us honest. And if we weren't honest, uh, turning us back to honest again. So thank you, Ken from Tallahassee. And um, those of you who are, I'm sure were out there also cheering, saying, I knew it. I knew there was something wrong. I was really just hoping that if I said it quickly enough, no one would notice that I was saying the wrong thing. Very smart, very smart audience. Today's if comes to us uh, from um, someone we, whose ideas we have used in the past. Uh, that is Jan, Lian, La, Jan Lundgren, or Leon, L-J-U-N-G-G-R-E-N, Jan from Sweden, who is now, because we are using multiple, we will now have used multiple ideas of his. He is being elevated to super duper, duper status. Yeah, this is a rare thing. I think that's just one below mega ifer. <laughs> Jan from Sweden had a wonderful idea. He sent it a little while ago, and, and we're getting to it now. And uh, he said, uh, I have a new suggestion for a what the if. What the if Lamarckism was true and powered evolution? How would human beings and other beings, if you want to include them, how would they have evolved? And looking forward, how would things evolve in the future? Cheers, Jan. Well, thank you, Jan. And cheers to your fellow Swedes. I have learned a word today. I haven't learned it yet, actually. I've heard a word today, and that is <laughs> Lamarckism. <laughs> Professor, what WTF is Lamarckism? So, named after uh, a French gentleman of the late 18th century, uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. Nowadays, we'd call him a biologist. That wasn't really a a, a category at the time. He predates Darwin by a century or so. Um, so at the very least, this is an important corrective to an idea that sometimes people say, which is that Darwin invented the idea of evolution, um, and he most certainly did not. That is, there's a long history of ideas about how animals and plants might change over time um, that predates him. Uh, in fact, Darwin's own grandfather was also an evolutionist of the Lamarckian variety, actually. So this, um, this idea that we should think about the natural world changing over time, which is what we mean by evolution, has been around for a long time. So Lamarck was inspired by a lot of the same things that would go on to inspire Darwin. That is things like the fossil record, 
the similarity between different species, right? Our hands look an awful lot like the structure of um, a whale's flipper or a bird's wing, right? And the, the question is, you know, is there some significance to that? So if you're an evolutionist like Darwin or Lamarck, uh, you say, yes, that, that does mean there's some connection between the species. The question then becomes, what is the mechanism by which animals and plants change over time? So already, just to be clear, but, but here we are. So we're moving from a series about computers. Yeah. Inanimate, well, very animated, but uh, non-living uh, machines. And we're moving into biology to uh, living creatures. Yeah. And these scientists, including the multi-generational Darwins. The Darwin clans. Yeah. Like the Walendas <laughs> of evolution. <laughs> had dispatched with the idea that uh, God created all the animals in five or six days, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So specifically the notion of special creation, which is, as you say, that over some very short period of time, days, if you're a biblical literalist, God created each critter to match its environment perfectly. So God looked at Arizona and said, rattlesnakes, bing, and there were then rattlesnakes there, um, and looked at Antarctica and said, penguins, and looked at New Jersey and said, I don't know, what lives in New Jersey? Uh, uh, <laughs> politicians. Corrupt politicians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's the notion of special creation. So, it, and it is an important detail to note that evolutionary ideas, be it Lamarck or Darwin's, certainly does not dispense with the idea that God was responsible for creation, but rather uh, that God created via system, naturalistic systems like evolution, um, that is sort of set the system in motion with, with some goal down the line. And that's the kind of idea that, uh, that Lamarck had in mind when he was trying to figure out how animals might change from generation to generation. Who is this Lamarck? Oh, so um, a French doctor in the late 18th century. I don't have his, his dates at hand, but... Um, pre-revolutionary France would be the right way to think about it. Who's trying to think about this particular puzzle of why it is that certain animals look like each other and seem to share certain traits. What's the proposed mechanism by which this evolution could happen? And Lamarck suggested that um, individuals would pass on to their children whatever characteristics they acquire in life. So the classic example that's usually given is the, the giraffe, All right? So once upon a time, it's hard not to make evolutionary tales sound like just so stories. <laughs> it's actually quite challenging. Um, once upon a time, there was a short-necked giraffe and it was it would eat leaves from the tree, but it noticed that the leaves higher up on the tree looked better and more delicious. So it kind of stretched up high, right? And in the course of that stretching, its neck got a little longer. And then its children tended to have longer necks. And they stretched a bit every generation until eventually the giraffes got very long necks. 
Okay. So the idea here is that well, what are called acquired characteristics, things that happen in your to you in your life or the things you change about yourself would get passed on to your children. And then those changes would accumulate over time and you would eventually get a new kind of animal or some distinctive difference. Oh, so he's saying they literally stretched. Yeah. They, they, that reaching changed their body and got passed down. The giraffe is the example everybody always gives for Lamarck. It's actually not a very good example because actually your neck does not get longer if you try to stretch it. <laughs> so um, a better example would be if you're a really fast runner, that is, so you're you're a professional, so you're Usain Bolt, right? Surely born with a lot of running ability, but also spends his entire life becoming a better runner, Right practicing and training and dieting, drilling and everything that's necessary. So if Lamarck is right, Usain Bolt's children, I don't know if he has any, would themselves be faster than the norm because they would inherit that from their dad. But that's, is that true? No. That is not true. No, not. <laughs> so this is this is the, the the critical distinction between Lamarckian and Darwinian evolution. I, I can attest to the fact that see, my father was an athlete. In fact, he was a runner and... Uh, yeah, I am not. <laughs> right. Neither is so my sister. Actually, anyway. <laughs> yeah, Darwin's theory of evolution, which is the one you'll learn in school today, um, does not postulate that acquired char characteristics get passed on. Um, the the genetic material is, is sort of fixed for Darwin, and he needs a different mechanism to make that work. But Lamarck's idea, in some sense, is a is a fairly straightforward one, right? You You wouldn't be surprised to see that a really fast runner also had fast children. Yeah. Right. Maybe because he would chase them. <laughs> and they would, they would need to get away really yeah. fast. <laughs> or a bodybuilder would have strong children. Right. That's, that seems, uh, you know, not, not impossible. Right. 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 And then the, the sort of examples that Lamarck was more interested in would be things like if I spend my life studying chess, will my children become chess prodigies, okay? And he said, yes, right? So the, the, the sort of vision of evolution over time that we come to call Lamarckianism is this one that depending on what you do during your life, how you change your own self and body and mind, that'll get passed on to your children. And then depending on how they live their lives, they will pass on different traits to their children as well. And he was a doctor, you say, so look, he was a medical doctor? Right, yeah. Right. So he he could see that, but it would be difficult for him to test that because he sounds like he didn't go digging for fossils, for instance. That's right. He did not go digging for fossils. And this is one of the things that makes Darwin's, or uh, that makes it possible for Darwin to come up with his innovations is that Darwin actually does go out into the world and digs up fossils and looks at animals in all sorts of different places. Lamarck just sat at home. Maybe he played video games or something, which is a valuable. And then got good at video games and passed that on to his children. Um, and this is why we now have professional e-supporters, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, let, let's let's just note that I don't know what whether he had a positive or, or sardonic outlook, but that would also mean that uh, the parents' faults and annoyances mm -hmm. would all be passed down as well. Well, that's probably true. I mean, it's not a very well 
thought out mechanism. So it's hard to hard to know exactly what he thought would be passed on or not. But presumably, if you were really lazy and you spent all your time being sloth like, you would pass on that laziness to your children as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So I should, this is an important thing to, to kind of flag here, is that a lot of these early evolutionary theories are used to justify various kinds of social hierarchies and various awful political decisions Ooh. too, right? So when you see someone poor, mm -hmm. you might say, well, they must not work very hard, and they didn't work very hard because their parents didn't work very hard. So they they deserve that, right? And this um, this is still around today. Uh, nowadays, we call this something like social Darwinism because we want to because we're used to associating Darwin with that. Uh, but with Lamarckianism, I think it's even more pronounced because. Surely the children of a smart person will be even smarter. So we should give them special privileges. Right. Actually, social Darwinism these days would be what happens on Facebook. It'd be very negative, very negative. Yeah, well, social Darwinism is kind of an awful negative thing. But this, this general sense that there's a, a biological explanation for people's social status or roles. Jan's question is, what if Lamarckism was correct? Mm -hmm. So here we go. Jan asks, what the if? Lamarckism was true <laughs> and powered evolution. With the Darwinian model, evolution is powered by fitness, how good you are at surviving. Can you get resources from your environment without getting eaten? So snakes end up in Arizona, not because God particularly wanted them in Arizona, but because that the particular physical characteristics of a critter that wandered into the desert one day happened to be well matched to the environmental needs of that spot. Coming from an improv background, in improv, anyone who's taken improv comedy uh, lessons um, and perhaps improv drama, I don't know. But uh, one of the, there's only one really, really fundamental rule, and that is what they call yes and. <laughs> very positive, very positive thing. It says that whatever, hap right, whatever happens, you don't say, if one person says, uh, comes, if two people walk out on stage and are about to begin a scene, which they have not planned because they've improvised. And one, the first person says, uh, puts their hand up and pretends like they're licking an ice cream cone. And they say, this is a delicious ice cream cone. And the other person says, no, it's not. It's a microphone and we're on stage in Las Vegas. That would not be yes, and that would be no, but. No, it's not ice cream. If instead they said, yes, it is. And so is mine. Uh, and in fact, mine is more delicious than yours. Now we have a scene. Hilarity. <laughs> And so it sounds like what happened in, in this form of, uh, in that Darwin situation, mm -hmm. it would be a snake was born, a creature was yep. born, and uh, nature, you know, said, uh, yes, okay, there you are, and you can move across the sand. And so uh, it's like, you're fine. It survives. Yeah. Right? 
So when, when Darwin says fittest, he actually means literally fit. You fit this environment. You can right. fit. Like, like, you can fit. Uh, that's right. Like a puzzle piece fits, right? Um, and I hadn't really thought about this analogy before, but you're right. <laughs> Darwinian natural selection does work kind of like yes and um, in the sense that you work with what you've got. Yeah. yeah. You can't change you can't change what you are, right? You're, you are this thing and you need to adapt to your surroundings. And if you do so, then you survive and your children are more like you and they adapt even better. And then if you fail to adapt, you die. Right. In fact, you, you might be accidentally, you were born with no legs, I suppose. Okay. And you slither. Yeah. That's all I was saying. Yeah. 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 And, you know, we've probably all seen some improv situations in which death would be the best reward for the performance. I have been in those situations and have even done the unthinkable, which is pretend to die on stage. <laughs> Just to get out of our <laughs> I've really literally laid down, yeah, like, oh, a heart attack, boom. So, yeah, don't do that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lamarck... Uh, Lamarck, if but if the worlds are run by Lamarckian evolution, they do not have to do yes and. That is, if the snake decides it wants to be a good swimmer, it can go practice swimming. And if it gets better at swimming, then its children will be better at swimming too. Right? So now, swimming is a terrible thing to try to learn how to do <laughs> in Arizona. Right? That's not a good strategy. Especially if you're a snake. Right. <laughs> Doubly bad. Yeah. All kinds of weirdness there, right? I should say there are places where it is good for snakes to swim, like in Florida, right? You got water moccasins and those do not swim because that's a place where there's a lot of water and it's worth learning how to do that. But in Arizona, that snake can just become a better swimmer. Uh, so over time, if that family of snakes, for some reason, decided to spend a lot of time trying to swim, after a thousand years, you're going to have a bunch of expert snake swimmers in Arizona. Now, that's a, ter that's a terrible thing, right? That doesn't help the snakes in any way. No, it could be good for tourism. Like maybe, you know, if you go see the <laughs> snake dancers in Las Vegas, Everybody the snakes will see these things, right? So I think one of, the, one of the strange features you would get is that animals would not match their environment, or at least they would not have to. Ah. Right? So you could get brightly colored penguins. That would be fine. There's no, <laughs> there's no reason you wouldn't have such a thing. So the world would look really strange, I should say, right? I mean, one of the distinctive features about the large-scale natural world is that animals live near plants that they can eat, and plants are, are well adapted to their environment to get the resources they need, right? Everything does kind of fit together in this particular way. With Lamarckian evolution, that doesn't have to be the case. The giraffe example, was that Lamarckism? Because there, at least, it wasn't just random. It was like, oh, there's more leaves up there, so I'm working harder. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's, it's a weird example because it's hard to actually stretch your neck in a way that your neck gets longer. But that encapsulates the idea, right? So presumably, the snakes do get better at slithering and not swimming because they decide that would be a useful thing for them to do. Right. They'll get more mice if they slither well. So is it, I mean, th there is a little, it's not, this Lamarckism isn't so, it, it's a, it's kind of a nuanced difference between evolution, right? Isn't, Darwin mm -hmm. would say that if a, 
forget why it was born this way, but if a snake was suddenly born that was faster than the other snakes or, or had a rattle, had a rattle on tail, right? Mm-hmm. So the rattlesnake and then the non-rattlesnake, the rattlesnake can avoid being eaten because it scares away the predators. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, over time, the rattlesnake would be the only one that still exists there because the others got eaten. Right. So the, the as you say, it is a nuanced difference. And from just looking at the fossil record, that's kind of hard to tell. But the nuance is, is quite important. So the nuance is this, which is that Lamarckian evolution is directed. That is, I can think to myself, I want my species to be better at swimming. And I will go spend some time swimming. And then I know that my children will do better and their children will do better and so on. So it's directed towards a goal. And the, the fancy word for this is, is it's teleological. If you want to break that out at a cocktail party, Whoa. feel free to do so. Teleological. Yeah. Anything that is goal oriented is teleological. Uh, I think that was a very popular color in the 80s. <laughs> everybody was everybody's wearing their teleological yeah. moon boots. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Darwinian evolution is non-teleological. That is, it's not directed towards any particular goal other than survival. The the metaphor for something like Lamarckian evolution is a ladder. And as you climb the ladder and get, you, you have some goal at the top that you're trying to get to. Darwinian evolution is like a shrub. You start in some particular place and then it grows in weird directions, but it's not the shrub isn't trying to get anywhere. It's just trying to get bigger, just expanding out. Yeah, so Darwinian evolution has no goal. Even though people talk that way sometimes, there's no set future goal of Darwinian evolution where every generation is just trying to survive better than the one before. And that, and, and so sometimes that ends up with bizarre things like the peacock's tail, which no one ever would have like planned for a million years ago, let's make a flightless bird that has this giant tail and is easy to see from a mile away. No one ever would have thought of that. But due to peculiar circumstances, that turned out to be a good survival strategy. Well, that's not, it is interesting. Yeah, that is the sort of yes and-ish. It's also, uh, it makes nature sound a bit more tolerant than we think about it, uh, than, than we think of it. So in other words, you can... This is all about mutations, it sounds like, and and sounds like Darwin yeah. is more concerned with just random mutation, whereas Lamarckism may have been a little bit more intentional mutation, more in the eyes of an improvement. But uh, with, with the random mutation, you're fine. as long It doesn't always have to be something that, in other words, there are giraffes, but there are no other creatures like that. There's plenty of animals that are surviving, like deer or Mm-hmm. monkeys or whatever they're surviving without having to eat the top of the trees it's just that you know they were able to exploit this particular region yeah totally so it depends on you know well you get a mutation and a weird thing happens you've got a sixth finger now or something the question of whether that's good or bad is in darwinian terms is whether or not it helps you compete for resources in the particular environment you happen to find yourself so uh, the ability to um, eat from tops of trees is very helpful if there's competitors that eat lots of low leaves because then you can eat, then you can have all the food you want. 
But if you happen to live in a place where there's nothing higher than six feet, then that's not a very useful mutation <laughs> right. anymore, right? Like, what's the point of having a 20-foot neck if there's only six foot? So that would actually be a bad mutation in some places. Plus, they had to have this mutation of being a giraffe also had to mean that for some reason there was no predator that already existed or that evolved that, you know, I don't know if there's a bird that flew at a particular height that was always bumping into their necks. Yeah, there would have to be. Uh, yeah, that's right. Not a downside um, to uh, to that. And I should say, and then what what happens with the Darwinian process is a feature that evolves for one purpose, then becomes the raw material for other adaptations later. So for instance, giraffes, giraffes surely have long necks in order to get the leaves on top of trees. Like that's that's clear that that's what the, the 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 functional advantage was, but they also drafts do this game that's called necking. Um, it's it's this kind of social interaction where they swing their <laughs> their necks at each other and kind of smack each other in the side, and it's this game that they play. Right? It's um I don't know quite what the human equivalent is, um, but it's clearly a, a, a social interaction and it makes this crazy noise this kind of kerwomp sound wow. where they whack their necks into each other so you might uh, sorry if you're a lamarckian you say oh those giraffes really wanted some way to socially interact with each other so they made their necks long so they could whap each other and darwin says no they're just just this is just a thousand generations of giraffes trying not to starve. And then once they have a long neck, they can do this other weird thing. <laughs> and sometimes those other weird things turn out to be really useful. Right. So we have opposable we meaning humans. Uh, no offense intended to non-humans who are listening right now. <laughs> we have opposable thumbs. Those surely evolved so we could climb trees better. But they're also really useful for holding a rock such that you can throw it or holding tools so you can make a spear and then hunt more efficiently. Right. Or for raising them like the fawns mm -hmm. on happy days and going, hey, it's another looking cool. That's right. Without the thumb, Fonzie would surely have, <laughs> have died at an earlier age. <laughs> uh, I can't remember enough details about Happy Days to make an appropriate joke right now, but uh, something like that. He would have been more like Ralph Mouth or Potsy, <laughs> who you don't hear about <laughs> so right. much anymore. <laughs> so let me take, I'm going to take a moment here when we're talking about beautiful things that are not necessarily necessary, but are entertaining. Things that, let's say, evolved creatures create. That's right. And then turn out to be useful later, I should say, for unexpected purposes. For unexpected, unexpected purposes. The Unemployed Philosophers Guild, they have all kinds of things that intelligent creatures have created that may or may not assist you with survival. I think they will within your milieu, you see. The What The If podcast, that's us, is supported by this thing I'm talking about, the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. They have finger puppets. They have finger puppets. That's all I need to say. Yeah. Well, what more could you want? What yeah. more could you want? They have finger puppets. And what are the finger puppets of? Well, there are geniuses. So uh, Albert Einstein. You can get an Albert Einstein finger puppet. Uh, there are also all kinds of political finger puppets and other gifts, you know, and literary gifts. So basically, if you're really smart and you love to make inside jokes with your fellow clever, witty, not smart, knowledgeable, <laughs> knowledgeable, smart. 
knowledgeable. You know, these they're wonderful toys. In fact, you, you toys and gifts, you've seen them all over the place there. They're certainly all over the United States and probably the world. If you happen to be in New York City, go down to the Union Square Holiday Market because these make wonderful holiday gifts. This holiday season and year-round, of course, and no matter where you are in the world, go to their website, upguild.com. And here's the good part. Use the code. This is evolution here. Remember this code. Use your brain to remember this code. Or use your opposable thumb to grab a tool to write this down. (laughs) W-T-I-F. If you use that coupon code, WTIF, on the Unemployed Philosophers Guild's website, you're going to get a 10% discount. That's, that's like if your neck got 10% longer. <laughs> For instance. Very evolved. You can buy 10% more fun and funny gifts for your friends this holiday season and all around the year. The Unemployed Philosophers Guild, where they say the unexamined gift is not worth giving. So getting back to our new social activity we've discovered called necking and chill. (laughs) (laughs) The giraffes are doing. Tell tell us more, Professor. So if you want to know this, um, this is a distinctive feature of Darwinian evolution is that it creates these weird side effects that sometimes prove to be useful later. And sometimes they're extremely useful, like opposable thumbs, for instance. And sometimes they're not so interesting, like little toes. (laughs) The, the late evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould um, wrote about these a lot because he was really interested in kind of the, the weird fluky elements of evolution. And he called them the spandrels of San Marco. And this Ooh. is a fairly obscure reference. So San Marco is one of the great cathedrals of all time. Oh, in Venice. So spandrel is this architectural feature that you get when two arches meet. So when you're building a big cathedral uh, with arches, have these things called spandrels. And they serve no functional purpose. They don't bear weight or anything like this, but they're really good surfaces for painting murals on. So San Marco has these spectacular murals painted across the ceiling across these spandrels. So looking at San Marco, you might say, surely the building was designed to create space for these beautiful paintings. But in fact, it was just designed not to fall down. Um, and then that accidentally created these beautiful paintings. So it's, uh, he, he says this, this metaphor is helpful for us to, to remind ourselves that you can get totally unexpected consequences that turn out to be really cool once you get a process like Darwinian evolution going. And that is a beautiful, I, I just looked up that cathedral. And yes, it is what I was thinking of is the, uh, what in English we call the Basilica of St. Mark's. Oh, okay. That makes me feel better. Yeah, yeah St. Mark's Square. By the way, in New York City, there's a fine St. Mark's uh, place, right? St. Mark's Street, yep. which is uh, somewhat ven- Venetian, but uh, more bohemian. In the sense that there's a lot of liquid on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, it happens to be, Venice happens to be having a lot of floods these days. You're probably in the news of seeing a lot of pictures of this beautiful uh, cathedral. Yes, look it up. So if we so if Lamarckian evolution was true, that opens up certain avenues for humans to do weird stuff too, because we can make our species into whatever we want. If we want to be really strong, we just all need to go lift weights. If we want to be really smart, we just need to listen to science podcasts all day. True, uh, right? 
so this is a, a sort of a, a a willful choice we can make. And part of the, a, a historical problem with the way people have thought about Darwinian evolution is thinking that it can be controlled in that way. And this is where we get eugenics from, um, is this, this mistaken idea that you can turn Darwinian evolution into a goal-oriented process. And it turns out you can't really, because that's not the way evolution works. So you mean that by doing this podcast, we are not creating a master race of science podcast listeners? We are not, but in, in our ift universe, we would we be. We are. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. That's right. So generation after generation, human beings would be really good at listening to podcasts. And that would probably not be to the overall benefit of the human race. But <laughs> but again, do? to the benefit of the cats, who are, <laughs> yes. always seem to interrupt podcasts. I think the podcasts are for the cats. Yeah, now actually, so so just real quick from an overview, it sounds like, and, and this has been, I felt like this has been lying under the surface the whole time. Lamarck, is, is it true that Lamarck is really mostly concerned with human evolution here? Yeah, I mean, sort of everybody is at the end uh, of the day, <laughs> right? We're really concerned about how to think about ourselves. But because of this purpose, this goal-oriented, we don't think... Yeah, that's right. Everybody, and every I should say there's many attempts to to think, to turn Darwinian evolution into some kind of goal-oriented process because everybody, we want to think of ourselves as the end of some intentional process, right? We're here for a reason, right? There's, there's a purpose for us to have earlobes and little toes. Um, but Darwin says no, right? It just so happens that our ancestors that survived happen to have those features. Don't, it's nothing more than that. Don't get attached to it. Right. Isn't it true? So in other words, we wouldn't need schools, for instance, if each generation was born with more and more knowledge. Well, schools would surely help. No, right? they would help. But like, if there, let's say there, there were 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years of schooling, at a certain point, you shouldn't, shouldn't you be born with all the knowledge the parents learned or, or no? Quite possibly, yeah. Like I said, I don't think Lamarck's model ever got detailed enough to really sort of estimate at what point that would happen. But the idea of passing on specific information is at least a possibility in the Lamarckian world, whereas genetic, whereas classical Darwinian genetics says the only source of change from generation to generation is mutations. But there's an important coda these days, uh, which is this kind of resurrection resurrection of some Lamarckian ideas in what is today called epigenetics. Mm. So uh, classical genetics is you're born with a certain DNA sequence. The DNA sequence programs your body is a, se- a series of genes. Um, those genes make your body do certain things, like grow hair in weird places or whatnot. But it turns out that you can sometimes you can have a gene, you have a particular sequence in your DNA, but that gene doesn't get turned on and it can only be activated by certain environmental factors. So it turns out that actually, while Darwin is surely correct about the general processes of evolution, there are some circumstances in which your environment does affect the expression of your genetics. But that's uh, this is a cutting edge kind of thing. And this is different than like social structures. In other words, the elite, let's say, the could say that 
it was clear that, you know, well, those people have over there on that side of town have always been poor and therefore they're destined to always be poor. And we are here, you know, landowners and whatever. But the truth is just that everyone born into that, into each of those societies is sort of stuck with the rules and patterns that are governing those worlds. Whereas Lamarckism would say, no, you actually is a, you, this is what you were saying earlier, I guess, that you couldn't take someone from one of those worlds, put them in the other one and have them become like that. Right. Yes. But this is, so this is the, this is where epigenetics comes into it. So you may have a gene, you know, an actual sequence of nucleotides that codes for, I don't know, uh, analytic thinking or something, right? And you might have that gene, but because you grew up in a poor neighborhood, you were exposed to large amounts of toluene when you were small, and that kept the gene from turning itself on. So you never get to use that gene. Whereas if you grew up in a nice environment where you were fed regularly, the gene does get turned on. So you can, so are you able to succeed? So it's a, it's a reinvestment of the importance of an individual's environment uh, for the expression of genetics. Going fast forward, leaping into the world where Lamarckism was true from the origins of life on Earth three and a half or more billion years ago. What does this mean? I'd imagine life in general would probably look pretty similar because it would be a good idea for snakes to get good at slithering and giraffes to eat off the tops of, of um, trees. Because you still have to compete. I mean, if two... Right. Yeah, you still got competition. Yeah. Uh, where it's going to get weird is once you have humans who can start making deliberate choices about things. So nowadays, you know, what do people spend their time doing? I don't know, texting. So we're going to get the next generation in Lamarck world is going to have really dexterous thumbs. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And be really immune to sarcasm and trolling. <laughs> And will text more and more and more and more and more. Yeah, because they're good at it. Right, so they become mute. Well, that would be one possibility, right? Is um, they'll, they'll lose the ability to speak verbally uh, because sort of all of their energy has gone into thumb, uh, thumb ability. Interesting. And there would, there would definitely be a separation between those who were texting each other with green bubbles and those with blue bubbles. Yes, that's right. <laughs> phones. Is the intentionality a huge part of, like, is Lamarck really mostly concerned with that ability to choose? Even though, you know, oh, this could sort of proceed accidentally, but like, is, is he, is he have some sort of moral thing behind it of like, you yeah, should? Yeah, that's right. The intentionality is the, the major feature of that. Um, that is, we become what we want to be. So religion, for instance, religious or uh, religions, organized religions, uh, kind of, right? They're, they're the groups that, uh, and, and any group that has an ideology is really pumping out this ideology. You should be like this. You should be like this. You should be like this. And so I suppose what it, what it means is that those passing on of those ideologies and those ways of being would be much more effective that's what we're really oh, yes. talking about. Definitely. That's right. Yeah, a really good strategy. A really good strategy would be to get a group of people 
and, you know, wall them off in a compound somewhere uh, and have them do whatever it is you want them to get good at. And then their children will be even better. Yeah. So you could, you know, create your um, your your isolated town in the wilderness will get really good at whatever it is you want it to be. Interesting. Although, or it, doesn't it also mean that, for instance, carpenters or guys who can wield a hammer get mm-hmm. better? They just become, you know, much, essentially, it would be bred into their very identity. Essentially, things that you do become, you actually go off into become another species or another branch of your Eventually. species. Yeah, that's right. You you will get so good at using hammers that you have nothing in common with the hypertexters. And then the world would be full of guys that have like one huge arm and probably <laughs> yep. a hammer that's like, <laughs> that's bone, right? That their hands, mm-hmm. their arms are hammers. Yeah. So, so we would all specialize at whatever it is we do very quickly, yeah, quickly in biological terms anyway. But it's important to remember all of this is contingent on your children being interested in doing the same thing you are. Oh, so what you're, you're not saying that actually, see, what I was thinking was that they are born already with this inclination. Yeah, a little bit better, right? But then they have to be hammerers as well if we're going to get to hyper hammer. Well, the thing is, they have this huge arm that is going to be a disadvantage in all kinds of other things. Well, and that's where we start drifting back into Darwinian ideas, um, because then questions of competition and fitness to the environment, right? Suddenly there's a hammer shortage. What do you do? The Darwinians say, well, all the hyper-specialized hammerers will die. Done. (laughs) <laughs> the Lamarckians say, well, it's no big deal. The hyperhammers just start focusing on screwdriving. And then they, after a couple of generations, they're better at screwdriving. Right. Or or I can imagine also you have you have these huge these guys with incredible men and women with huge one arm gigantic that is literally a hammer in and of its their fist is a hammer. They could then imagine going to boxing. <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> yep, the, they evolved point. into boxers. Yeah. Who then develop two arms that can punch, see, and they then could go back into carpentry and they can be twice as fast now because they have two hammer hands. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right. Okay. Lastly, is that what Lamarck imagined or was he still just focused on the fact that, no, this, what you were saying, the kids have to also pick up the burden They've been given a gift of a somewhat better being better at that's, some skills. That's a pretty subtle question. I'd have to go back and, and read some Lamarck to to get a good sense of that. Um, and that would be an interesting research question. Yes. Well, this is quite a vision. I feel like we only even slightly began, but this is, uh, I'd like to just continue. A- anyone out there in the audience who, who would like to send in some sketches uh, or just descriptions, <laughs> I would love to see what, what does this mean if this Lamarckism were true as as Jan from Sweden uh, suggested, uh, what does the world look like? That would be amazing. So uh, again, before we before we wrap up, I want to give out another one, one last shout out to our friends at the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, who you know really are so helpful, and you know we've been sharing their wonderful puppets uh, with all of you for a long time. And Jan from Sweden, you are going to get one. I am going to send another one to Sweden, uh, a finger puppet of a wonderful scientist or science fiction character is coming your way. Maybe it's uh, Darwin or Lamarck. I don't know. Do they have a Lamarck puppet? And might be have something we have to request. As I mentioned, we're supported by those folks. The Unemployed Philosophers Guild. They also make planet plates, not just finger puppets, planet plates. 
plates that are entire planets, but they're lightweight because they're made of melamine. They are not as large as a planet. Well, they're dwarf planets. Featuring watercolor portraits of our solar system. As you dine, you could dine on any planet you want. You can find those at philosophersguild.com. From the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, use the coupon code WTIF to get 10% off those planet plates or anything else, puppets and whatever. Unconventional gifts for your unconventional friends. Matt, thank you. Uh, anything uh, coming up uh, that you want to plug? Uh, no, once I finish grading, hopefully I'll get to sleep a little. All right. That's, see, that's a plug. Yeah, not really something our listeners can participate in, but, you know. Sometimes a plug is something like I'll be at uh, Max's Kansas City and then I'll be at the uh, the Rainbow Room or it might just be, uh, well, I'm going to be sleeping. Yeah, I'm so going to be sleeping a little. That's mm-hmm. it. That's it. So I propose everybody out there, get some sleep because next week some other if is coming our way. You can send us suggestions for what it might be on Twitter at what the if show on Twitter or you can email us feedback at what the if dot com. If you're curious, well, what kinds of things could I suggest? What do these guys do beyond this uh, bizarre biological experimentation they were doing this week? Just go to our website, whattheif.com, and you can listen to all our shows there. You can subscribe, so you get each um, issue for free. Automatically, just pops up in your podcast player. And if you would do us a favor in return, if you could just leave us a review on whatever podcast service you're listening to. That would be wonderful. If you're not sure how to do that, but you'd like to help us out, send me an email and I'll, 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 uh, I'll help you do that. Next week, who knows what evolution... If right, evolution is going to happen for yet another week, as it has mm-hmm. for so many weeks. And at the end of that week, we don't know. I mean, it's a million random processes coming. All we can say is that the if that will be coming our way will be the fittest. The ifest <laughs> for that week. And when we think about these things coming at us and we, we don't know what sort of evolution, should, what sort of body um, manipulation should we be undertaking to be prepared for that, we cannot help but scream. What the, the if?